Good day, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Live with Doug. We are thinking through God's Word together. Glad to have you with us on this beautiful, glorious 18th, 19th, <laughs> 19th of January, year of our Lord Jesus Christ, 2023. So I'm not sure exactly why I picked this topic. Actually, I do remember. Uh, I did get some questions on this. And I thought, you know, we'll spend a couple days on 1 Corinthians 11, just kind of give an overview of this uh, head covering thing, and then we'll move on to something else uh, next week. Well, this is going to turn into a little bit more discussion than that. Uh, I'm seeing by some of the comments and uh, and statements along the way, questions. There's a lot of misunderstanding here, even on the things that I think are pretty obvious, and then the there's a lot of things in this uh, in this text, in particular here in First Corinthians 11, that are just difficult that I'm not sure of. So, we'll uh, we sort of made a little series here. We're going to talk about head coverings. We will talk about women being silent in the churches, and come back and uh, talk about headship and submission in marriage because I saw some comments about that that are in need of improvement, and I want to help you think through this. So that's what we're going to do for few days. I don't know how long. We'll see. Uh, so glad you're with us. Good morning, Keith. Good morning, Ron. I'm glad you could join us. Okay. So let's, uh, let me think, which way do I want to go with this? Um, imagine being in a culture. Well, we are in a culture. Let me, let me go this way. What is the symbol of marriage in our day? Right? Simple question. Those of you who are with us live, what's the what's the symbol of marriage? How can someone look at you and determine quickly whether or not you are married? Simple question. I know there's a little delay, but uh, and it's obvious. But let me just uh, give somebody a moment to respond. I'm sure you're all going to get it. In most Western cultures and probably most cultures around the world. Yep, Ron got it. It is the wedding ring, right? And it, traditionally, both the husband and the wife wear wedding rings. And it's a symbol for themselves to indicate that you know we are in this covenant together, but it's also a symbol to others. If you are in the hunt, <laughs> if you are looking for a spouse and you see someone with a ring on their left uh, ring finger, which is what we call it, then you know that person is off limits. Now, if you look here, I'll hold up my hands and I'll describe this to you for, uh, for those listening. Uh, you see, I'm not wearing a ring. Why is that, you might ask? Is it because I am looking to display to the women around me that I'm available? No. Uh, I was uh, doing a rock climbing exercise with my son several weeks ago. And uh, <laughs> he, he put some, I forget now what they're called, some grips, something. He, we hung them from the ceiling downstairs. And I jumped up there, wanted to show this young whippersnapper that I could uh, do this too. And all I did was jump up and grab a hold. And I heard this rip. In fact, he was uh, on FaceTime with his girlfriend and she heard it over FaceTime, just rip my uh, ligament tore. And come to find out, it can take 16 weeks or so for those to heal. It still hurts. This has been six, seven weeks now. And uh, playing guitar and things, it still still hurts. Um, so it all it swole up and I took my ring off 
for fear that it might keep swelling and uh, and that would be bad. So anyway, I took it off, but as soon as the swelling goes down and the uh, ring, the finger is healed, I will put the ring back on because I like to, uh, to let everybody know I'm married. Now, what would it say in our day if a wife took off her ring, right? So she's married. She takes off her ring. She does up her hair and her makeup puts on a, uh, an attractive, flattering dress and goes down to the local bar on Friday night. What would that say? What does the bar, what does a bar symbolize today? I'm not talking about pubs. I'm not talking about breweries and that kind of thing, but a bar, uh, there's a, there's a stereotype, right? To who goes to bars. It's typically men and women who are looking to hook up. They're looking to, to find a willing partner and have a quote unquote good time. A wife who goes to a bar all made up without her wedding ring is sort of putting out there on display, hey, I'm willing and available for a guy who's interested. Get what I'm saying? Get that? Well, that's what a head covering was. The veil was in the first century in Greco-Roman culture. It was like the wedding ring. I mentioned in a previous series, we looked at 1 Timothy 2 and the, uh, the prohibition there of women uh, teaching. And Paul there says, uh, let a woman not be known for her jewelry, external appearance, that kind of thing, the braided hair, but instead the good works and and, uh, and her godliness, that kind of thing. And I mentioned a book by uh, Dr. Bruce R- Winter called, I believe, Roman Wives, Roman Widows. I think that's what it's called. Uh, he makes a good case. He pulls together lots of literature from poets and authors and, uh, and legislation of the day to build this case that in the first century, when a, uh, well, let me say it this way, there was, a, there was an expectation of proper, citizen wives to have a certain appearance. This wasn't a Christian thing. This wasn't even a Jewish thing. This was a, a, a Roman, a Greco-Roman thing. So if you were a citizen wife, married, obviously, to a, a citizen husband, you, are, you were to be a worker at home. You raised the kids. And in public, you wore a veil over your head to show everyone that you are married and they didn't wear lots of jewelry and makeup and fancy hairdos and that kind of thing because that was inappropriate for the proper Roman wife. But then there was this rebellion, first century feminism, much like we've seen in our day, where wives, these good wives, quote unquote, these, uh, they, they, they took on the name new Roman wives and they threw off all that convention because they were saying, look, men were allowed to go out into public, do whatever they wanted to basically sleep with whoever they wanted to, as long as it wasn't a, a proper married woman. Uh, they were allowed to purchase the services of prostitutes 
and servant girls and even servant boys, so long as the uh, the proper man, the citizen, was the on the um, the giving side of things, if you will, and the boy was on the receiving side. That I mentioned that because that plays into in First Corinthians six, the uh, the effeminate there and the homosexual language that's talking about the two sides of a homosexual encounter. We'll save that for another time. But anyway, the men were pretty much free to do whatever they wanted to, except violate a, a, a citizen wife. But women were very restricted. And these women started saying, no, that's unfair. We're going to throw off all restraint. And these proper wives began to defy their husbands and act like all the other women, the single women, the prostitutes. They began to dress like them and go out in public without their veils wearing sheer see-through dresses and basically going to the bars to find men to hook up with, that kind of thing. And the clothing they wore communicated where they were. Were they the submissive wife, proper, under the authority of their husband and seeking to obey the law, again, Roman law, or were they throwing off all restraints? So that's the context of 1 Corinthians 11, as I see it. In other words, Dr. Winter helps me at least to understand the cultural things going on here that, that makes 1 Corinthians 11 a little easier to understand. Now, there's still parts of it I don't get, and maybe some of you have this figured out and can, can enlighten me, can teach me, uh, but it's this framework that seems the most likely to me. So with that in mind, let's now go back and look at the text that we started yesterday. First uh, Corinthians 11.2, Paul says, I praise you, I praise you Corinthians. Why? Because you remember me and everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. I was reflecting on Dale's question yesterday. He asked uh, something about this word tradition. And I don't think it goes beyond just this simple statement here. It's the noun form of this verb. Paul is saying, I delivered things to you and you hold firmly to the delivered things. That's, I'm not sure it should go any further than that. He's simply saying, I've, I've taught you some things and you have held true to the things I taught you. you. You've practiced the things I told you to practice. So he's commending them, right? He says, I praise you. He says, but I want you to understand. I want you to know that Christ is the head of every man. The man is the head of a woman and God is the head of Christ. Now, the first question that comes to my mind is, why does he want them to know this? He thinks maybe they don't know it or he's reinforcing something that they know. But just interesting that he says that I want you to know this. There seems to be something going on in Corinth that causes Paul to say, I'm pleased with how you've implemented what I've taught you in the past, but I want you to know this in light of whatever it is you're going, you're, you're doing and, and observing. And as I told you yesterday, we have to dig in here because we're hearing one end of a phone conversation and we don't know exactly what they were asking, what was going on. But whatever the question was, the answer is you need to know this. Christ is the head of man, man's the head of woman, and God is the head of Christ. Now, we've got to know what this word head means. And uh, Mike, Keith, I'm glad you're on here today because I saw your comments and I, you need to keep digging in and we'll come back to Ephesians 5 and I'll show you 
the pulpit commentary you quoted is wrong, and you're looking at that all wrong. Um, the words cannot lead to the conclusion that the pulpit commentary draws. They, they just can't. We've got to understand what headship is. Headship in Ephesians is laid out very clearly. Head, by the way, head really falls into two categories in the New Testament. One is just this thing, <laughs> this, this part of the body that's above the neck, right? It's just, it's the physical head. The other usage is authority. Let me show you. In Colossians 1.20 here is talking about God uh, worked in the strength of his might in Christ when he raised Christ from the dead, seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. And if you know your scripture, you know that the right hand, one of the things that's sitting at the right hand of a king means you're in the place of authority. So Christ is now seated at the right hand of God, connoting, among other things, he is in the position of authority. And that plays out as this goes on. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. So Jesus is sitting in that place, the right hand, and he's over, he's, he has authority over all other rule and authority, power and dominion. And he is above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also the age to come. And God, he put all things in subjection or submission, it's the word submission, hupotasso, under Christ's feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. So you see headship is authority. Submission is under authority. So you've got the head and then those who are under the authority of the head. There, there's no arguing about this. This is simply, simply what it means. Colossians 2, same thing. Speaking of Christ, for in him, in Christ, this is uh, Colossians 2.9, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. In him you have been made complete, and he is the head over all rule and authority. That's the point of being the head. You're in authority over those who are in submission to you. Dale says, the liberals assure me that head means source, the fountain. Yes, yes, they, they boldly assert that uh, without warrant uh, because their presupposition going to the text is God would never put a man over a woman uh, as her authoritative head. But that simply doesn't bear out in the scripture. So back to 1 Corinthians 11 then. I want you to understand Christ is the head of every man. That means he's the authority of the man. And the man is the head of the woman. That means the man is in authority over the woman. And God is the head of Christ. That means God is the head of the Messiah. Now, you can see why uh, I was arguing yesterday that I think man here isn't just man qua man, but it's 
husband. And that woman here is not just woman, but it's wife. And I think that'll play out as we go. I can't prove it, but it, it makes the most sense to me because in the flow of this context and comparing to other texts, I don't see where every man is ahead of every woman, but I do see where husbands are the head of their wives. So that's my operating assumption. And we'll see if the text bears this out or if anybody throws uh, arguments back at me that would take it a different way. But I'm operating under the assumption here that the intent of what Paul is trying to say is God is the head of Christ. Christ is the head of a husband. The husband is the head of the wife. That's what I see going on here. And again, if you have opposing view and can show me from the text, then I'm all, I'm all for it because I want to know what the scripture says, but I don't want, I don't care what the liberals say, Dale. And I know you don't either. All right, so with that as, uh, as the introduction here, Paul says, every husband, it says man, it could go either way. Again, I'm going to translate it husband because I think that's the point. But we may run into a few places where that doesn't work. We'll see. Every man slash husband, maybe I'll say it that way, who has literally against it or down on his head, on is not even in the text, but it's hard to make this uh, fit in English. Um, so let me, let me say it this way. Um, every man slash husband disgraces his head. Okay, that's the, that's the main subject and verb in this sentence. Every, every husband disgraces, dishonors, shames his head. And then he gives a, uh, a qualification. He, what man does? Every man, the one who prays or prophesies, having down on his head. That's sort of a wooden literal translation. Uh, now I know that's not uh, that's not clear to you, but uh, side note, people sometimes ask me why study New Testament Greek? Can't we know from the scripture uh, in English? Yes, you can certainly understand things in English. But one of the things every time I study a passage to teach on it, one of the things I do is I translate it from the Greek to English, literally, woodenly, literally, in a, in an unreadable way because it forces me to stick to the actual words. We are so distracted by concepts, by our own preferences, by our own um, uh, desires for what is true, what we've read in theology books, commentaries, all that stuff. We're so influenced by all that that we don't easily stick to the text. And this is what I was saying to Mike earlier. Um, the pulpit commentary on Ephesians 5.21 cannot be true. It just, it just, I'm just telling you, it cannot be true. That is not the point. And I can say that because the actual words that Paul uses and the, the point from 521 on, actually back to 517 on, are simply making a different point than the one you were espousing in the comments. And by sticking to the actual words here, it helps you at least eliminate some possibilities. It doesn't answer every question, obviously because I don't know everything. <laughs> so I can't just tell you, oh, I read Greek and I know everything. But it does remove some possibilities because of the words themselves. So a again, a wooden translation here is every man disgraces his head. Well, what, what kind of man? Does he really mean every single man? No. Every man who prays or prophesies having 
something down on his head, some, something along those lines. Okay, so we had a switch here, I think, from this metaphorical use of head authority to the physical head. That seems to be what's happening here, which is interesting. What does that mean? What does it mean to have something on your head? What does it mean to pray or prophesy having something down on your head? Well, let's see if the parallel antithesis helps. But every woman or every wife disgraces her head. Every wife, every single wife, the wife praying or prophesying with head uncovered. Why, Paul? Why is a wife praying or prophesying with head uncovered a shame, a disgrace to her head? Well, Paul says, for she is one and the same as the woman whose head is shaved. This is why it seems like he's switching here to physical head. So there's some relationship between what a man does with his physical head, what a woman does with her physical head, while praying or prophesying, that causes disgrace or communicates disgrace to his or her authority. You see that? So husbands have an authority over them. It's Christ. And to pray or to prophesy with something down, having something down on the head causes dishonor to Christ. And sort of the opposite of that, that is a wife who uncovers her head while praying or prophesying brings disgrace and dishonor to her husband. Why? Because she is one and the same with the woman whose head is shaved. Now, in our day, that just doesn't communicate anything, does it? <laughs> but if Winter is right, Bruce Winter is right in his analysis, then it's something like this. In that day, when a when a man went into a temple, and a temple of what we would call idols, what the Bible calls idols, he would, if he had a toga on and, and any kind of a head covering, he would take off his head covering in the presence of that deity, that false deity. And in that culture, you didn't approach deity with as a man with your head covered. A wife, as I said at the beginning, her proper respect for her husband to show I am married and I am a proper wife, faithful to my husband, devoted to my role as a wife, devoted to loving my husband, loving my children, taking care of the home, those kind of things, symbolizing all of that is the veil over the head. Now, for that woman who went out to the bar without her wedding ring and hooks up with some dude, she's committing adultery 
right? Well, the punishment in the first century for a wife who committed adultery was they were then to shave their head and play the role of the prostitute. You see that? If you're going to act like a, a whore, basically, if you're going to act like a floozy, then dress like one and be submitted to, to that situation. That's why Paul is saying if, you, if a wife is going to throw off her head covering and take on the role of the, the wild woman, the free woman, the sexually liberated woman, then she's acting just like the shaved head, the prostitute, the adulterer who was caught and penalized. So far, this all makes sense to me. That the emphasis here is, men, you have a head, Christ. He's your authority. And so if you're praying or prophesying, and it, it, it seems to be in a, an assembly because you wouldn't prophesy alone, so it seems to be gathered with other Christians. If you're praying or prophesying, in that culture, doing so with your head covered was an offense against the deity. It, it just communicated, you're going you're gonna to cover your head when you're in the presence of deity. That is offensive. That's disgraceful in that culture. A wife in the assembly here is praying and prophesying while she throws off her veil, throws off her wedding ring, refusing to acknowledge that she's a wife taking on the persona of the wild, sexually liberated woman while she's praying and prophesying, that is disgraceful to her husband. She's no different than the shaved woman, the, the prostitute. Does that make sense? Am I, am I, I know I'm going painfully slow, and you may see like, yeah, I got this, but I know there's a lot of people that don't understand these things, and it's all confusing, and I'm trying to go slow enough that you can follow the argument. Maybe I won't persuade you, but at least I'm trying to give you something to not be persuaded of. <laughs> Does that make sense? Um, and our time is up here, so let me just kind of leave it there. But that's that's where I think this is going. I see a couple uh, comments here. Lon says, "My understanding is if uncovered long hair is woman, a woman's glory, then her man is not her glory. She's not abiding." Well, we haven't got to hair yet. Um, I don't think. I think the covering is. The veil, the veil on the hair kind of thing. Uh, but maybe, because he does talk about hair specifically a little bit later, so we'll see. A man's head covering replaces Christ as his head. Uh, maybe. Of course, what's interesting then is, wouldn't you think the same would be true of the woman if that was the intended symbolism, right? So a man covers his head replacing Christ a woman covering her head, replacing her husband. But that's clearly, it's just the opposite. He's saying husbands, men don't have something on your head. Women must have something on their head. Curtis says, have you heard Michael Heiser's take on this? I have not. I have not. If you want to put a link or something in the, in the comments, I'll, uh, I'll take a look. All right. Our time's up. Ponder that, reflect on that. Uh, we'll keep working through this, uh, but not tomorrow. 
because tomorrow is Fridays with the fellows. So gentlemen, come back and join us and we'll talk more manhood. Until then, uh, keep wrestling through these things. Have a great day in the Lord and we will see you tomorrow and or Monday. God bless.